This episode of the Event Industry News Podcast is sponsored by Evolution Dome, award-winning temporary inflatable event structures. Take a look at their structures at evolutiondome.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast with me, James Dixon, wishing you all a very good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever or wherever you tune into today's podcast from. And I'm, I'm looking forward to today's podcast because... It's, I suppose, what you call an open conversation. Often when we record the podcasts, we've spoken to the guests in advance and we have a a particular topic or an agenda or a set of questions, maybe uh, talking points that we want to to get through on the podcast. And today really is is none of that and all of that um, because it's a bit of a blank canvas. Um, We're going to be talking to a guest who has not been on the podcast before, but I am generally excited to have the opportunity to talk to on this sort of fine Monday at the start of the week where no doubt our guest has had to take out some time from what I'm sure we'll learn to be as a very, very busy schedule in order to talk to us. I'm delighted to say that joining the Event Industry News podcast today is Orson Francesconi, who is the Managing Director of FT Live and joins a podcast today from their office in London. Orson, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Hi. Hello, everyone watching, listening. Um, yes, and uh, as I said, FT Live, um, part of the, the Financial Times organization. You're um, at your office at the moment in London. Um, and let, let's start, because we have no agenda as such today, let's let's start with maybe something that may be really obvious, Orson. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your career up to now, and your current role at FT Live. Yeah. Uh, Hi, James. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I'm currently the managing director of FT Live, which is the events division of the Financial Times. Um, I started my career uh, nearly 20 years ago as a content producer for a company called Euromoney Institutional Investor. And so I used to write conference programs um, right at the beginning of, I guess, the boom in B2B conferences and events. I mean, they had existed for many years, but the, the digital transition in the B2B publishing industry really provided a big boost to conferences as we know them. Uh, all of that advertising revenue that used to go into print magazines had to find a home and it didn't automatically or naturally find a home online. And so a lot of that money kind of made its way into, into events because marketeers started realizing that the ROI from event sponsorship um, was a lot more, I guess, traceable and mm-hmm. visible than, I guess, on digital advertising. And so. I really lived the boom in the B2B conference industry for many years, and I produced many, many lovely events for Euromoney. And then uh, I moved internally within the Daily Mail Group. At the time, Euromoney was was a owned subsidiary of the Daily Mail Group, and I moved into a different division called DMG Events, which is a large-scale exhibition organizer. And so I moved from conferences to exhibitions and trade shows, which are a very different beast. Mm. Uh, and there I was running some of the world's largest oil and gas events, you know, things with 25,000, 30,000 people. I'd gone from a you know 200 people conference to a 25,000 people show with 800 exhibitors. So fascinating and very different business model. Uh, and then I moved to a company called Haymarket Media, which people in the UK would know quite well. Absolutely, Historic yes. Media player, B2B media player as head of their events. And then for the past four years, I've been, I've been at the FT as managing director of FT Live. So I guess my background has been into how to monetize audiences through events for publishers, I guess, primarily in B2B media. Mm-hmm. The FT is this, I define it as a weird beast as a, as a B2C broadsheet and a B2B information provider, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a hybrid. And that's that's a, a, 
that gives us lots of advantages. Sometimes it's a disadvantage, but by and large, it's it's a nice place to uh, to be in the in the industry. And so, I guess I started in content, then obviously made my way into general management, and I guess I've experienced lots of the different event models, uh, from conferences to trade shows and exhibitions to owned events to uh, I guess agency style private events, and maybe we might go into into that. A bit yeah. More. Second, but um, uh, I guess I've been around a bit, and I've run lots of events in all sorts of industries and topics and formats around the world. And and, and what uh, an interesting organisation to be part of there, because as you alluded to, the Financial Times is unique in its its place within the media industry and within the newspaper industry is unique in that it's it's a newspaper that anybody can go out and buy. And you can pick up a copy of the Financial Times, but it's unique in the sense that its audience is also very much a business audience. It's people who work in the financial industry and in the industry of economics. Um, and yeah. so its presence as a newspaper has always been very, very unique in that respect. Mm. Uh, and thus its presence within the events industry, I'm guessing, also shares probably similarities in its in the unique way it not just approaches its events, but in some of the clientele it serves. Yeah, yeah. So... As you said, you know, we're a B2C broadsheet. You can still go out and buy the Financial Times on the newsstand. Uh, but the reality is mo most of our revenue comes from subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And the subscriptions are, are in the B2B kind of price territory. So, uh, you know, you're talking about five, six, seven hundred pounds a year for mm -hmm. a subscription to the FT for a full subscription. Uh, and so a lot of these are still taken out by individuals, but a lot of these are still are also paid by, by companies. And we're now up to 1.5 million subscribers across the world. Um, and so we have a, an unbelievably powerful brand uh, that touches on all sorts of industry. Obviously, we, you know, we define ourselves as a business newspaper, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but we span every industry that you can think of in every corner of the world. And that gives us you know, great power. From an event point of view, it, it, it's also a fantastic brand to work with. I guess a, a lot of my time is also spent on deciding what what to do and what not to do because with, with a brand like the ft you could run an event on any topic at every corner of the world and in, in every mm. minute of the day right so the the temptation is constantly to run all sorts of events on all sorts of topics and we have a wonderful stable of 600 incredible journalists that are constantly coming to me with lots of ideas and so actually the the skill at the ft being md of ft live is also being able to pick and choose where to play and where to kind of hold back because with such a ubiquitous brand, you could be doing all sorts of fun stuff. And I guess you know, there's only li limited resources and time and time in the hour of the day. Indeed, and the first thing that springs to mind there is, you know, finances and economics affect every business, mm. affect every consumer. Mm. You know, so arguably, you could say that you could you could put an event for every possible business sector that you can think of, and every consumer sector that you can think of, and it would potentially be viable and potentially be relevant to what you do so finding yeah. the ones that will work because ultimately you know as, as as much as an event business is there to serve its clients and, and serve audiences and provide insight and information to its audiences you know you're primarily there to make money so i, I guess that must be a fine balancing act to, to decide which ones are viable from a commercial point of view it is um, you know, we, we, we deliver close to 30% of the group profits. So we're a very, very profitable part of the, of the FT group. Um, and, and as I said, sometimes the, the temptation is just to do more because, because, you know, the numbers can afford it. But the, the reality is, you have a finite amount of resources. You know, we have uh, 140 people at FT Live, primarily based in London, then mm -hmm. New York, 
uh, Hong Kong and Singapore with some small teams there. Um, and, you know, not only do we deliver lots of profits for the group, but we also deliver lots of engaged audiences that can then go on and become subscribers. Uh, mm. of and that really is our kind of the, the North Star of the group is to grow our subscriber base. And so the great thing about the events is we've been able to show through some research, internal research, that the um, subscribers that attend events have a higher propensity to renew their subscription. And that's mm. kind of the, you know, kind of the dream of the B2B model is to constantly increase your renewal rates. Uh, and event attendees that aren't subscribers to the FT have a higher propensity to subscribe post-event. Uh, I mean, you might say these are all these, this all makes sense, but when we're bringing in close to 250,000 delegates per year into our events, these are online and in physical presence. You know, these are quite big numbers that go and help our subscriber base and our renewal base. And so there's a lovely kind of not only do we bring profits, but we also help considerably kind of drive the North Star of increasing our subscribers and increasing our renewal rates. And so it's a really kind of nice symbiotic relationship between us, our subscriber um, uh, team at the FT, and obviously the amazing newsroom with the 600 journalists and, and the huge convening power that the brand has. Mm. I, I, I will, and I've, I've noted down here uh, the word data and, and subscribers, and, and we'll get onto that shortly. But if I may, I, I took a, a few minutes prior to today's recording just to have a little look on the FT Live website. And FT Live, uh, I think it's live.ft.com is the one right. that I'm on for anybody who wants to have a little look at that website once they've listened to this podcast today. And I went on there, and in a matter of you know seconds, I looked on your upcoming events and filtered them just by September. September. Um, really easy, it, it really easy process to do that. And in September alone, there are 24 events listed on your website, of which the breakdown is nine are digital, seven are listed as in-person and digital, so a hybrid event, and eight are in-person. So that's nine, seven, and eight. So by my reckoning, that's a fairly even split across mm. those three um, genres, if we can call them, out, of event that we now run. Yeah. Um is that reflective? Is that snapshot of September reflective of you know the wider annual operations of FT Live now in terms of the split between those three event types? Yes, but by and large, yes, James. And so, um, before we get on to digital and and, and in person, we we run two uh, kind of main type of events. So we run our public facing events that are multi sponsored. These are kind of your typical B two B conference. Mm -hmm. multi-sponsored where people can buy a ticket to attend so for example the ft banking forum or the ft cryptocurrency forum uh, and then we have what we call a a partner event model or apply and tailored event model and these are private single sponsored kind of activations where a potential brand will come to us and say we'd like to convene a particular audience around a particular topic um, because we want to deliver a particular message. And so this is kind of an agency style event business model. And so we're, sure. we're really running two, two business models. One is our owned event business model. And these are repeatable events that, that we want to grow in the long term. Another And the other partner event model are kind of one-off activations by brand who want to convene an audience with the power of the FT brand to deliver a certain message. That part of the business is, is growing quite strongly. Um, and this is something that back in the days when I started in B2B events, I remember we always used to frown upon. Every now and then we'd get a brand saying, can you do a private event for us? And we'd say, oh, no, you need to sponsor X event or you need to come to our public events. Uh, and I guess the market has evolved and changed. And the way I like to describe our offering is really 
if you think about CMOs and marketeers, they're trying to convene your audiences and deliver certain messages. Um, and it can be top of the funnel type activation, activation, or it can be kind of middle of the funnel or bottom of the funnel. And de depending on where in the funnel you are and the message you want to deliver and the audience you want to attract, we have a different kind of offering for you. So if you want your CEO to sit next to the one of the editors of the FT in front of 500 people um, and delivering some big piece of news, then our public events are great. But if you want to convene a smaller audience because you want to deliver a certain more of a bottom of the funnel kind of message, we can also deliver you that audience in a five-star hotel or a Michelin-starred restaurant all the way to a digital roundtable uh, and webinar. So we have, a, I would say, a relatively complex business model where we're operating lots of different types of events. I mean, the only, the only ones we're not delivering currently are kind of trade shows, although we have an event in Amsterdam called TNW, which is the next web, which is a big tech festival with 10,000 people. But other than that, we're not in the trade show business. But but other than that, we're, we're operating, you know, webinars, conferences, roundtables, digital roundtables. And before the pandemic, I would have probably said, you know, it's a bit too much and it's probably um, a, a lot of work and it adds complications because you're running lots of different things. But mm -hmm. we, we see it as a strength now and we're able to offer a menu of choices to the clients that come to us and need the FT to help deliver their message or find a solution to their problem. And we can offer a wide variety of solutions, I guess. And so mm -hmm. that does come with complications because you, you need several teams and specialities, but uh, it's been serving us quite well. And if we reference back to something that you said at the very start of mm -hmm. today's episode, when you were talking about your your own career and and and, and going back sort of some 20 years, you know, I... I had a background myself in, in B2B publishing. I worked for a small publishing company that published business magazines. I did that in my 20s. And I was, you know, there, I remember going to my first trade shows was, you know, whilst working for that publishing company, um, going to the NEC and finding out what a trade show and what an exhibition was for the first time. And they were vast, gigantic things. I was there, you know, working for that business in 2008 during the uh, financial crisis when suddenly marketing spend was pulled. And then... Similarly, when in 2010, the first iPhones came along mm. and suddenly there was this big decline in, in print media mm. and everything going out. And what that's leading me to is the statistic that you said, where currently you've got 1.5 million subscribers. 1.5 million subscribers means 1.5 million people's worth of key data, mm. job roles, job titles, businesses, interests, age, demographics, location, where they live, what, what they do. Um, and data is everything nowadays, which uh, I guess it, it is why the agency side of things can be so important to an organization like yours. Was yeah. was the agency side of things something that had to wait until you had enough data and able to make that a viable option? Or was it driven by the fact that suddenly you, you realized you had this data and you could then go out and offer it? Which came first? Yeah, really good question. So it was here when I when I came to the FT four years ago. It was a lot smaller, I guess. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, it's been going quite strong. I think there's a kind of general industry trend where a lot of people want bespoke activations with with private audiences, and that's just a, a marketing trend. And I guess we're, we're capitalizing on that quite well. Um, and the reality is we, yes, we have lots of subscribers and we're able to slice and dice the data in lots of different ways, but also where we don't have the data, the reality is the strength of the brand allows us to bring it in relatively quickly. And so, uh, especially on our digital 
events, we're able to, you know, convene global audiences, you know, in a, in a matter of four to five weeks, we can activate a digital event for one of our clients around a niche topic and a niche, niche uh, audience. Sure. Um, and the reality is, you know, the power of the FT brand allows us to do that. And, and there, there aren't that many brands. I mean, there are lots of brands in, in niches, but there are very few global brands that span sectors where we're able to do that. And so we, we use our, of course, we use our current data, but also we do go out and build data and we're, we're we're able to do that relatively quickly. And that's really thanks to the strength of the brand, to be honest. Mm. Did did the pandemic help from a digital subscription point of view in the sense that people were forced even more than they were already to access their work via a digital means? They weren't mm. going into offices anymore. They weren't interacting face-to-face. -face. They were doing everything via an internet connection and a laptop. I'm just wondering whether or not actually in your particular scenario that actually led to an increase in, in subscribers given the way that people had to work? Yeah, good question. So our, our subs subscriptions in increased considerably during the pandemic. I mean, I think in fairness, that's less to do with with. FT Live and more to do with the news and business cycle, right? And so during a crisis, we always see at the FT an increase in subscriptions. And so, you know, when Trump became president, we got big bumps in subscribers. When Brexit happened, big bumps in subscribers. When the pandemic happened, big bumps in subscribers. We're the kind of brand that people turn to in a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, and so that was kind of, that, that happened naturally. Then, of course, from, from an event point of view, we were unbelievably successful in transitioning to, to a digital model. And, and again, back to the brand, we, we were kind of, and our, our friends in the trade show industry suffered so much um, because, you know, their model is based on on an in-person um, meetup and face-to-face -face meetup, and you have to visit the stand and touch the product that the people are selling on the stand. And of course, replicating that on in a digital way was a complete nightmare. I mean, uh, I really felt for my friends and colleagues because I'd spent quite a lot of time in the trade show industry and I, and I love it. Uh, and I could see them trying to move digitally and it's really, really hard. Uh, mm. And I guess we were the right brand at the, at the right place because we're a content rich brand, which in a way lends itself very well to a digital model. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, we, you know, hardly any of our events have kind of physical exhibition stands where people are, where people are, are, are showing a particular physical product. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, the brand was the perfect brand at the perfect time to transition to a digital model. Uh, and so we, we did very well, to be honest, out of it. And it continues, our digital products continue to be very popular and successful because if you're wanting to convene, and I'll give you an example, we have a big famous technology company that has just signed up a, a series of digital events with us where they want to convene uh, four audiences in four parts of the world around a particular niche topic in technology, Latin America, Asia, Europe, and US. Um, and in the next two to three months, we'll be delivering those digital events. Now, if they were to do them, imagine wind back pre-pandemic, if they, if they wanted to convene those audiences in a physical mm. place in four corners of the world, well, that's probably a 12-month lead time for something like that. You know, a conference for 200 people in Latin America, Asia, around a particular event. I mean, good luck building the data, getting people to say yes. And the dropout rates on, on some of these partner-free events are, are quite big. So you kind of need to book lots of people to make sure you have enough on the day. You got to fly people out. You got to fly the speakers, the cost of the venue. So you're talking longer lead times and bigger expense, right? And now in a, in a matter of weeks, they're able to essentially generate um, huge number of leads via 
via our digital events. And so CMOs have become quite canny. And while there's this whole d debate about going back to physical, and of course, physical events have, have been booming since the pandemic, CMOs realize if they want big numbers of leads that are engaged in a relatively short amount of space, digital is the only thing that'll give it to you. Absolutely, yeah. And doing it in a, in a physical manifestation is still valuable, but it just takes a lot longer, I guess. Well, th this goes back to your point about the right clientele, the right audiences, you know, and in the and I use the term right audiences or the right clientele in the sense that every industry is different. You know, there are certain industries and I've referenced the obvious ones before on this podcast, uh, something like the clothing or the fashion industry, you know, the, the, the big cloth exhibitions that take place in in northern italy and in cologne you know you can the, the 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 tailoring industry goes to those exhibitions so they can actually feel the cloth so they want to it's a tangible event you can't do that digitally the flip side to that is if you're talking about modern day economics and finances it's all digital it's cryptocurrency right. it's blockchain it's etc it's all stuff that lives in a digital space so can be convened quite easily within a digital space um so yeah. in your the, the examples that you've just given there you know th these this is what we've said on the podcast before about how you know digital is here to last because the pandemic drove certain marketplaces down a route where they realize actually we can do this just as effectively for much less cost and just as big an impact if not more Correct. And, that, and that's not really going away. I mean, the, the best piece of business for us is, is where, and we have quite a few of these clients, where a client will come in and say, listen, over the next 12 months, we've got this strategic message we need to deliver. And we need to deliver it in lots of different formats in different ways. And so they will see the advantage of an in-person event, a digital event, uh, a private roundtable for 10 people or a private dinner, uh, and, you know, a big physical congress for 500 people and and they will realize that they were able to deliver that message across if you think back to the marketing and sales funnel you know top of the funnel activation i need big numbers so probably digital is the only way to go middle of the funnel i can do that in a five-star conference venue with three four hundred people and my ceo is sitting next to an ft editor mm -hmm. and i can get lots of visibility through that uh, and then two months later i can do a private bespoke activation at a michelin star venue with with 10 key people right and so you're you know you're moving those people down the funnel through the different types of events and 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 we have quite a few clients that kind of understand that uh, and are able to put together a whole program of our events that spans from our big pu public events all the way to the private kind of um partner events that we run uh, which is which i guess in, in is expanding their own reach you know a huge word that's used in the events industry now is community building your communities your event communities and your audiences yeah. and having several different types of event that service the same mm. sector fundamentally but built and tailored in such a way that like you said maybe an in-person event is just for 20 people who've been cherry-picked to be there yeah. maybe your online event is for 10,000 people but what that's doing is giving the end the end user the, or your client uh, in an agency perspective, mm -hmm. the opportunity to expand their community further by running more events rather than in the old days where they would have an annual in-person event and that was all their eggs in one basket. Yeah. And this is, I mean, the pandemic was, was crazy times for everyone, right? And in a way, 
you know, it was the biggest threat to the event industry. And then we will all remember that, you know, the, the, the early days of the pandemic, we thought this is going to wipe out our industry, you know, certainly for years and maybe for good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, we now all know that it's we've come out a lot stronger from it. Not yes. only, have, you know, even the trade show, our trade show friends have got bigger numbers than pre-pandemic now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they suffered quite a lot in the pandemic. But now the event industry is bigger than it was before the pandemic because not only have we got the in-person events that have kind of bounced back quite quite strongly, but also the digital events didn't exist. And so the, the pandemic created a product that never existed. And so, um, and in a weird way, it did exist. You know, there was a thing called webinars, which nobody used to do. People, <laughs> they were really yeah. naff and nobody liked them. I was like, why would you do that? Uh, yeah. So, But suddenly, you know, we, we have new digital products that never existed. And so... Uh, incredibly, the, the pandemic has helped the events industry grow bigger and faster than it would have without the pandemic. And who would have ever thought that, right? Indeed. And and I mentioned about 12 months ago, I think I mentioned on this podcast that the word webinars seemed to have disappeared from our vocabulary. You know, it was a word that cropped up occasionally pre-pandemic and a webinar. What a, and it always seemed to be a bit of a ridiculous term, you know, terribly, but, naff, wasn't it? terribly no. naff term, a webinar. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, you know, what we were trying to promote as webinars pre-pandemic suddenly became digital events, Yeah. you know, uh, and, and digital event platforms and, you know, just I guess sometimes all you've we're, got to do is reframe. Now, right? We're using we're doing a digital event now, and I can see the platform you're using is is um, is Streamyard, and obviously we've seen so much happening in the event event tech world. You know, there's another yeah. another industry was born that never existed before was the event tech industry. Now we all know that it's gone through lots of ups and downs, but mm-hmm. you know that's a new industry that's brought new money into the events industry, employment, jobs skill set you know i have a whole team now of people that are experts at digital events that never had to do that really and so they're they're more broadcasting ready than say kind of physical event ready and you've you've actually preempted um what i was i was sort of leading up to which is to ask about the restructuring of of your own business um with the digital space and again this is something that we've spoken about on the podcast many times in the last 18 months two years is that you know companies that have done hybrid or digital events really really well are the ones that recognize that this is a new strand a new element of their operation and and to treat it the same with the same team of people as the ones that deliver your in-person events is foolish given the opportunities that we've already alluded to in this discussion today how much sort of restructuring or repositioning of staff did you have to do and in what sort of time frame in order to really deliver the digital element that you can now do now yeah. So, I mean, during, during the pandemic, obviously, we, we had a crazy pivot and transition. And so essentially, people overnight had to learn a new job, in particular, the operations, our operations team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them loved it, and some of them couldn't cope with it. Because, you know, essentially, you're, you're asking someone from running a live event to become a TV broadcaster in a matter of weeks. And so it was really difficult and tough for many people. Um, but essentially, most of our team now, and but but now we're, you know, as time has gone by, you know, teams are specialized into the types of deliveries. I mean, I would say that most of our operations team can can run both events, so physical and digital. There are some people that essentially full-time look after our digital event technology or broadcast quality. Uh, I was just list- talking to our head of uh, operations yesterday, and they've just bought a, a new vision mixing desk, which I, I find fascinating. I and mean, this is something we would never have used mm. pre-pandemic, right? And so suddenly 
we've got vision mixing desks we've built we have a beautiful studio in the basement here uh, at bracken house in london uh, that we use a lot we've built a, a mini studio here on the events floor that didn't exist before um and so we have a whole team that essentially dedicated to digital transmission and live broadcasting which yeah, is and, its own set right i mean you know yeah and, uh, and regardless of the, the the scale of the operation i think many people if not all people listening to this today that worked in in events in some capacity will have experienced that i experienced it you know we I'm on the production team for Event Tech Live, um, which is part of the event industry news family. And in that pandemic, you know, I sat in front of a camera for five days straight to do a virtual edition of the event. And like you said, we had to learn how to set up the office as a TV studio, you know, yeah. almost overnight. You know, what can we get hold of? Mm-hmm. Not only, you know, in a short space of time and learn something new, but when supplies and equipment was was limited, you had to get hold of what, you had available to you and and make it work and um that the learning curve that that put us through i think ultimately will serve us really really well because you know we we learned so much in such a short space of time that when we did come out of the pandemic i think for the most part we were very very clued up and tooled up in in what to do once we were given the scenario where we had better access to better equipment and better services and better facilities i agree i mean i, th- I think of of all the industries that were impacted by the pandemic and basically you know all of them were ours was up there with with airlines in in, in being the most disrupted like you know mm-hmm. live events and airlines i mean forget it you know you can't run live events but we were probably of all the industries the ones that were able to adapt and morph uh, and really use human ingenuity and um sometimes the fear of kind of your you know losing your livelihood and your job really made you think there's got to be a different way and it's pretty incredible case studies i suspect in 20 years times business schools will look back at the event industry as one of the most resilient i guess and it's probably you know as we know these are cliches but they're true people who work in events are used to all sorts of adversities and things happening and being able to deal quickly with crises right and i think that set us up really well in terms of mindset yeah you know, we've, we've all run live events where things have gone terribly and you've had to do stuff really quickly right and i think having that mindset of being able to react really quickly put us in front of lots of other industries that were just caught like kind of rabbit in the headlights right yeah um, and so yeah i mean you know it's it's incredible we did incredibly well at moving really quickly and you know kudos to everyone really and and, and that and that has really put us in good stead and now you know we all look at the event industry numbers we're bigger the whole industry is bigger and better and more profitable than it was before. You, you mentioned something a few minutes ago, Orson, about event tech companies and the boom in, in that particular sector, which, as you yeah. said, has, has has gone up and it's gone down and working on a trade show that services that industry. You know, I know for sort of firsthand, uh, in, just by looking at the exhibitors over the, the the 10 years that I've been involved with Event Tech Live and the changing company names, the companies who were there 10 years ago who aren't there now, the ones who've sprung up, the ones who've disappeared, the ones who've really made an impact. And, and that brings me to a, a question about platforms, because, again, looking at the FT Live website and looking at the events that you run, you can easily, within a few clicks, see some of the scheduling, the, pro- the programming of, of some of the events and, and what's available. And that, I would guess, has all been driven by a, a, an event platform of some description. Mm-hmm. How many different 
suppliers have you kind of gone through in order to find ones that work for you? Because again, re referencing the pandemic, we were faced with a scenario where very quickly we had to make ch decisions. I know a lot of organizers who chose a platform very, very quickly, but then changed it very, very quickly. Very mm -hmm. few organizers that I know have stuck with the same platform that they initially went within the pandemic because they slowly evolved and realized that some were better than others for their own purposes. What was the story like for you? Yeah, so I mean, I'll never forget more or less the months between May and August of 2020. Essentially, I must have been in hundreds of meetings with platform providers and technology and, and hundreds of technology meetings and, and essentially trying to figure out how we were going to build this digital events business. Um, it's fascinating, Tom, unbelievably intense. Mm. Um, and, you know, I must have met every event entrepreneur under the sun and I became very good friends with some of them. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Johnny at Hoppin is a dear friend of mine and so is Iran at, at Bizabo. Um, they are both great friends of mine and they've both been through lots of ups and downs. And, and in fact, I, I wish Johnny lots of luck and well in his next venture. Whatever he does, I'm sure will be an, another incredible success. But obviously, you know, what, what a story there. Yes. Um, we, we by and large stuck with with our provider, which at the time was uh, was Bizabo and our and our friend Iran uh, and our friends in in Israel and New York, and it served us very well. Um, not without its complications and complexities, um, but essentially it serves us, served us very well for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, I can go into lots of the detail if you like, but it, essentially, you know, we dabbled with a few other pieces sure. of technology, yeah. uh, and you know, we kind of adopted a real agile mindset in terms of testing and trying and pivoting, you know, as and when we needed. And so, but by and large, we stuck with, you know, uh, we now have essentially two or three tech providers that we, we stitched together, I guess, serves us quite well. And that's not to say that I'm not constantly looking at, you know, how's this mm. space evolving? Are there better products out there? Clearly costs of replatforming or something you need to take into consideration. Absolutely. Um, so you can't take a replatform lightly, but at the same time, you know, the world is always changing, our product is always changing, and our needs are always changing, right? And so yeah. um, whatever is serving us well, to, very well today, it doesn't won't necessarily serve us very well in five years' time. And so yeah, well, we need to be on top of it, really. What, what I found exciting is the development of smaller sort of niche tech uh, products and services that, that that will integrate with the bigger platforms, so, some, you know, including you know, platforms like Bizabo, you know, where, um, it, you know, for the right client and for the right audience and for the right particular type of digital event, there may be a small niche company out there that does something that integrates nice and easily that offers a particular service. And I think that's really where from the last sort of 18 months, two years, as I've seen some of the event tech services grow, it mm. is some of those sort of smaller niche companies that are working with the bigger uh, platforms. Um, any experience of that in your end of things? Yes, yeah. I mean, we we are using, um, uh, I want to get the name right here because, gosh, I, I, sometimes I mix them up. I think it's Grip, Grip yeah. um, as a networking kind of mini meeting platform. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then there's another one we've been looking at. Um, I guess the, the, the small players that focus on a niche uh, are good in the sense of um, they're not trying to be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, 
I'm acutely aware of the event tech cycle and their funding cycle and where startups are. And so there's always the risk with some of these small players is that, you know, one day they exist and the next day they're gone uh, or they can't sustain themselves uh, or they get bought up and swallowed by another player. And so I guess the pluses and minuses of using small ones, you know, small providers that focus on a niche are good because they, they're, they're specializing on a very small segment, but at the same time, um, they can have the disadvantage of, you know, where's their funding? Are they going to exist in six months' time? If I build a whole user case around a particular platform and then this platform goes, what, what happens to my business? Uh, and so particularly my product and technology team are always acutely aware of also using too many providers. You know, the integration costs and the cybersecurity costs of attaching yourself or making your tech stack too complex and complicated yeah essentially you have this you have essentially this access of you know simplicity and complexity um, and then one one stop providers and using lots of smaller providers and i guess depending on your business model you have to find your way somewhere on this axis right and so you know sensibly i would say don't 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 place yourself at the two extremes of one end so don't Put all your eggs in one basket with one provider but at the same time you can't have a tech stack that's got 20 providers because the complexities of it falling over and the cyber security risks that brings with it and the risks of them you know disappearing because of you know the funding cycle coming to an end or, or, or whatever mm. uh, and so i guess it's a real skill and it's something we're constantly evaluating in terms of you know looking at the user data what's working what's not working mm. looking at our mps scores in terms of are people satisfied with their digital event experience, and then constantly scouting out what's out in the market, really, um, and doing some internal development as well, I guess. Uh, but, you know, suddenly, you know, I've gone from being a, you know, a physical event, I guess, MD CEO to, you know, a digital event, a digital company CEO MD, which, frankly, I've loved, and I've, I've, I've had so much fun, and it's been an exhilarating ride. But essentially, they're different skill sets. And but I think anyone, you, you would argue that anyone who's leading any sorts of a company, if they are not digital enabled and they don't think, think digital first, they're essentially going to be left behind. And so mm. and so this was a big wake up call to the event industry as well, I guess. Right. Indeed. And and, and just, uh, you know, a, a blatant plug um, after you've listened to today's episode, if you do go back and, and search uh, wherever you get this particular podcast from, be it on the Event Industry News website or on your podcast platform. If you search for some keywords like tech stack or you know tech platforms, you'll find loads of podcasts, particularly in the later part of 2020 and early 2021, where we spoke about the developing development of tech stacks. Because again, that was a phrase that sprung up, and people were like, "Well, what on earth? Is, what on earth is a tech stack?" You know. Mm. APIs, integration, you know, that there are all these, not just, you know, how to do it, but the terminology in order to be able to communicate effectively with all these providers. Um, and, and if you, you're curious to, to, to maybe reference back sort of two years on from some of those conversations, do have a little search through uh, some of the, uh, the the older episodes of the podcast. Um, we've also, spoken a lot. Well, please go on, awesome. Sorry, James. Also, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, incredibly, I remember when I was working for the DMGT, there's the Euromine and the Daily Mail Group, many, many years ago, they sent more or less everyone on an agile capital A product development training course very early on in my career, um, which was, was you know, quite progressive for them, I think, at the time. And I remember when the pandemic hit, um, and I remember asking my senior leadership team here at the F FT Live, how many people have heard of agile with a capital A or being on an agile training course, and n none of them had. 
And suddenly I realized the scale of the challenge. Not only did we have to pivot to a digital model, but also the people and the skill set had to transition to a digital way of thinking as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so we did a whole piece of learning and tech, learning and development for the whole of FT Live around agile, around thinking digital first. Um, and we're now at a stage where you know everyone does think in a digital first way. But you know that transition wasn't easy. It wasn't just the technology, but it was also the mindset, the skill set uh, uh, among amongst the whole team. Um, but we've gone yeah. on, yeah. And what a period of time, you know, when we look back between, I guess, the decade 2010 to 2020, when you look at the the advancement in digital communication uh, that we experienced in that, in that single decade. I know that in the, you know, from 2000 to 2010, we had email and people start, you know, computers and laptops started to creep into the to the workplace and replace traditional paper methods. But really that that decade between 2010 and 2020 in the pandemic, had we not had that explosion and that, I suppose, just gigantic leap forward in mm. in digital communication, then that the period of time between 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic that would have been a very, very different landscape had we not had such a, a significant 10 years of development prior to that. Um, yeah. And I think you already mentioned that in years to come, we will, you know, we will look back that uh, on that, you know, in, in sort of the history of economics and and in history, full stop, as as such a significant period in our in our development. Um, yeah, you know, as I, humankind. I keep telling my team, you know, we've we, we weathered the pandemic storm, and I, I can't think of a another type of event or cataclysmic occurrence that would mean that we're not set up to to keep going even even in whatever the next thing that the world throws at us right agreed um, and so we're in a really strong strong place now because you know we we all of us have now got different models different skill sets a lot more advanced skill sets that really places in a way that you know uh, whatever the world throws us at next this industry is stronger more resilient than it has ever been before really Mm. It's incredible. And the technology has allowed the world to be more interconnected. And so the need to communicate slash meet is never yeah. going to go away, right? And, you know, either meeting online or meeting in person. And, you know, we can we can go through the, the pluses and minuses and the benefits of one versus the other. But the fundamental fact remains is that the world is more interconnected now than it ever was before. Mm. And that's never going to change, really. And so for people who work in our industry, I, I say this is a great time to join the event industry because... Uh, we've never been needed so more, and we've never yeah. had so many tools at our disposal to deploy our offering so well than we have ever before, right? And so it's a great time to be in the industry, right? Absolutely. And, and if I may, I, I'm, I'm conscious I've got one eye on the clock, and I, and I have every appreciation for how busy your your schedule must be. But we've spoken a lot about the digital side of things and, and the transformation that we've had to go through. But it's really important that, that that we also very very quickly just look at the the physical side of things and in person events and and ask whether or not the the return as we experienced it in the latter part of 2021 to the ability to conduct in person run in person events drove you uh, as a business to actually rethink how you deliver those in-person events was there an expectation that when they did come back that they were not necessarily bigger than ever but certainly better than ever in terms of the quality of production how you were delivering things the visual aspect the interaction aspects how, how did the pandemic shape the in-person events for you when they came back 
So, I mean, by and large, you know, physical conferences are physical events or physical events. And so uh, the fundamental proposition didn't change throughout the pandemic. And so when, when, once we went back, essentially, you know, convening people in a physical place at a certain time in a certain way, that hasn't changed. Having said that, um, it's a lot more competition for people's time. And so people will only, you know, choose the events where they can really get an ROI. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, while there was this big kind of rush to meet in person, I also feel and I've seen that, you know, people are a lot more pickier with how they use their time, right? Um, I mean, you only need to think about, you know, how difficult it is to get people to meet you for a business lunch. You know, the reality is now a lot of people are working from home. They only come into town two or three days a week. They're really time poor because essentially the merging of your personal life and your business life has become a lot stronger since the pandemic. And that's been good by and large, but it means that you're a lot more time poor than you were before, right? And so mm-hmm. people will only pick the events where they, there's a kind of uh, obvious ROI. And so that means not only an amazing expe- experience on site. And so things like I don't know, digital backdrops and making sure that the events look, look incredible expectations have gone up a lot right and and that's a lot of fun although it comes with a cost um and essentially you know i can't imagine in-person events now without a digital backdrop in the next in the next 12 to 24 months i can't imagine any any event from a from a you know reputable brand that'll be able to run a uh, an in-person conference with an old-fashioned backdrop and a projector, right? So, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, absolutely, I, I agree with that. You know, yeah, that, that's been fun, but it comes with a cost. But you know, the costs of that are coming down thanks to China in a way. But then the so obviously the on-site experience has to be great, but that was always the case. But obviously, using the latest technology to make it even more kind of wow. But then we're back to the ROI on the day. What am I going to you know, what am I leaving my house today to get to a five-star venue in central London to, to go to a conference? Unless the content is amazing, but the people I'm meeting and the time that I'm using while I'm there is unbelievably productive, then this is a bit of a waste of time. And so we're back to facilitating business meetings and making sure that people's time and effort uh, is not devoted to just listening content, but in terms of, you know, the amount of time people they meet and the quality of people they meet and the quality of those interactions has become more, I mean, it was always very important, but more important than ever, because if I'm, if I'm just going to listen to the content, well, I know that I can listen to the content from home, especially since FT Live, 100% of FT Live's events are all broadcast digitally, and we've made a conscious decision not to roll back on that. Uh, and so unless the in-person experience provides me with a higher ROI, then the digital experience, so then this is a waste of time for me to, to leave home and go meeting people face to face. And so we're spending a lot more time uh, and effort in terms of um, facilitating those meetings. Sorry, Brella is the other is the other piece of technology. Of course, yes, we, yes. Fixing up Grip and Brella, we, we use both. Um, uh, but Brella is, just to be fair, not that I'm making advertising and any one product, but I just want to be fair. Um, and so we are investing a lot more in making sure that people's times at the physical events are a lot more productive than they were before, because otherwise they might as well watch it from home, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that was always the argument pre pandemic, you know, when we spoke about, we mentioned webinars, but you know, when, when we were having the, the discussion pre pandemic about live streaming events, you know, Oh no, we don't want to live stream our in-person event because we're worried that if people can watch it on YouTube, they're not going to turn up to the in-person event. You know, that, that, the, that argument or that particular point of view, I think has been well and truly cast asunder. Um, yeah. I still get it every now and then with, from the team. And I, I, I'm always amazed really, but a, the people watching from home by and large tend to be different people. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and so, you know, the people that are going to watch from home and there's also different price points and access points are actually different from the people who come on on site to do meetings but also you know people watching from home this is a is a, an incredible marketing tool not only for our sponsors who love the digital activation by the way because it's giving them a lot more exposure to bigger mm -hmm. audiences all over the world but it also provides a huge marketing funnel for just talked about our subscription but in future years for our events and so you know, people who watch our events digitally are more likely to buy an in-person pass in the future than, than people who don't, right? And well, so, well, absolutely. And when we talk about data, again, something we, we, we've we've spoken about today. You know, when you look at pre-reg and registration statistics historically in the events industry, you know, we can now correlate pre-reg data. And people who didn't turn up to the in-person event, but then subsequently did log into a, a digital offering or some sort of online version of the event. And, you know, how many of those people had every intention of turning up, but for whatever reason, personal, business or otherwise weren't able to attend. Therefore, they were afforded the opportunity to at least log in digitally. Mm -hmm. You know, you've potentially not... Um, uh, shunned somebody from coming or prevented somebody from coming by offering it online, you've actually given them an opportunity to still attend when they may not have done. And the beauty about the digital data is now is that we can draw those conclusions where maybe pre-pandemic when we were still talking about just live streaming an event, we couldn't draw those same conclusions because the data wasn't linked in the way that it is now with our various registration platforms and online delivery platforms. And the, the other thing that the digital event or broadcast allows you and this is something that we're also investing in quite strongly is the whole vod experience and artificial intelligence now is really coming into its own with this and so we're looking at solutions where essentially post event you can search for a word and it'll bring you straight to that piece of you know and it could be a two-day conference with hundreds of hour of content uh, and say say for example the ft's at a global banking conference, which is a three-day event with hundreds of speakers. Well, in the not-too-distant future, you're going to be able, post-event, to log into our VOD solution and search for, I don't know, interest rate rises, for example. Mm. Uh, and the technology, in a matter of seconds, will bring you to the points within the hundreds of hours of content where interest rate rises have been mentioned, right? Mm. Um, and this is a you know pretty valuable source of content Again, different user case, uh, probably different people who wouldn't have necessarily come to a live event, but who need to figure out, for example, what's happening in the world of banking, and they need to figure it out quite quickly. Mm. Uh, and this will allow them artificial intelligence and new technologies, which are coming in kind of thick and fast, will allow them to access content in a kind of, kind of very productive way. I mean, there's one thing allowing somebody to have VOD access to hundreds of hours of content, but who's going to sit and watch hundreds of hours of content? And there's another user case if I'm allowing people to watch hundreds of hours of content, but also to search for the content that they're looking for. 
Yeah. Um, and this is kind of really, really exciting, right? Uh, yeah, and I know that there's 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 at least one platform that we've actually spoken to on this podcast before that that will take you know the, your video, run it through in a matter of seconds, and actually um, bookmark and and uh, right. digitally encode keywords. Yeah. So it will take you in an hour and a half keynote speak session. It will just take you to the specific thirty seconds where that keynote speaker referenced that particular topic that you're searching for, without right. the need to scroll through the whole video. And and as you said, this is all AI, you know, development where it really comes into its own in terms of you know, streamlining the way we access that content afterwards and making it a little bit more effective. Um, yeah, and it, it just provides a lot, a lot more value to the to the user, right? And suddenly um, you've got the in-person event value, the post-event value, and it just makes our users a lot more stickier and want them, you know, provides them more value and so with a higher propensity to come back and, and buy again or attend events again, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm really conscious of time today because, you know, we usually keep these to sort of 25, 30 minutes, but it's, it's been such a fascinating conversation today that uh, mm. I was keen to make sure that we afforded uh, Orson the luxury of uh, a little bit extra time. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for, for the time that you have given today, Orson. Our, our guest today has been Orson Francesconi, who's the Managing Director of FT Live. If you would like to look into a little bit more about what they're up to and what they are as a business, as I've referenced the website on several occasions during today's podcast, live.ft.com is the website to go to. And you can look at all of the, the events that they're running, filter them by month, and, and you'll see in in practice some of the things that we've discussed today in terms of the mixture of digital in-person and digital and just in-person events and and the blend of events that are being run in there um awesome thanks very much for your time is there anything else that we need to oh go on if anyone's got any questions or needs any advice um you can get me on linkedin i i, I always reply to linkedin messages and so uh, happy to share kind of thoughts advice on on events model or anything that you've heard today and you want a bit more news or clarification, I'm always happy to, to share. So get, you can find me on LinkedIn. Fabulous. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. And uh, just one, fi one final word, um, just, just for our own uh, publication. If you're mm -hmm. listening to this today on your podcast platform, thank you very much for tuning in as always. Please do make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast as well on your podcast platform. Please do head over when you get a minute to eventindustrynews.com. You can see the latest news features, special supplements relating to the various verticals and, and different uh, sectors of the events industry. And of course, the A to Z supplier directory. If you work in the industry and you're looking for a supplier, a service, a contractor, a particular type of event technology, there's a good chance that you will find it within the A to Z supplier directory on eventindustrynews.com. Of course, if you are already on the website and you're watching this or listening to this today while you're working, thank you very much for tuning in. And please do go in the opposite direction to wherever you may get your audio podcasts from and make sure that you are subscribed see, to the Event Industry Vegas, Podcast. Maybe. See you in Vegas next year? I, I, I will be in Vegas. I'm on the, I'm on the production team for Event Tech Live. You know my first, my first ever event was in Las Vegas, so I had the I had the pleasure of it last year. That's a whole podcast series in itself. Yeah, is is learning how to work in the U.S. Uh, event space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see you in November for Event Tech Live in London, of course, everybody, yes. and uh, and then in April next year for the second edition of Event Tech Live over in Las Vegas as well. Um, thanks very much again to Orson Francesconi for joining us today, and we'll see you on the next edition of the podcast. Thanks, everybody.